0: you weren't here last week, um, we explained that we're going to take 10 weeks to go through the book of Psalms. If you don't know, um, we really believe the best way to understand the Bible is to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, taking huge chunks of scripture and really kind of breaking them down. Um, so we've gone through uh, Mark and Judges and, um, and, and just recently Titus, and there'll be kind of stop points where we stop and do that. But over the summer, we're going to go through the entire book of Psalms in an overview by picking 10 Psalms. Uh, uh, If that doesn't make sense, you'll kind of see as we do it, the rhythm and and why we pick some of the Psalms that we we did. So um, what we're going to do, and and what I kind of talked about last week as we open up to to Psalms 8, um, is what last week afforded us the ability, and I think in in Psalms in general, is kind of two things. One being, Psalms allows us to be who God has created us to be with our emotions. So something I said last week is there are moments where you're, you're angry with God, and that's okay, right? Uh, there are moments where you fear, you're scared. There are moments where you feel like you're in awe. There are these emotions, and I walked through 24 of them that, that are really are unearthed in the book of Psalms that make um, the way that God has wired us really beautiful, right? And so we get to kind of get into to, to a lot of that. And at the same time, what the book of Psalms doesn't uh, really lay out is imperatives. Like, here's what you have to do, but rather, here's how it is. And so um, with all that being true, we get to see things that are, are true about God whether we like it or not, that God is this type of person. And that pushes against sometimes the way that we naturally believe because of Genesis 3, because of the brokenness of the world. And so we're going to go at Psalms 8 this morning. And, and with that emotion, what we're going to really, really try to hold on to tight, and I'm going to do my best and I get super loud, um, but it's going to be hard because the, the emotion that's going to be unearthed is this idea of awe, this idea of Wow. Like maybe some of you grew up in the church and um, you know a lot about God and you can you you can you know the felt board and where to put things and you got the Bible verses memorized. But the reality is, um, somewhere along the line, we have forgotten like how awesome. God is. The example I, I always use is I remember, geez, eight years ago, Corbin was six months old. We're sitting at a graduation at Shapiro High School. Watch somebody graduating afterwards, fireworks go off and everyone, I look across the field and, and everyone is kind of just standing there talking to each other while fire bursts in the sky, okay? And as fire is bursting in the sky, I cannot get Corbin to stop looking. No matter which way I turn, he's looking over my shoulder, watching fire explode in the sky, Right? But we're just kind of casually haphazard about, yeah, we're talking, while fire from the sky bursts, right? So there's this amazing thing that at one point in our life, we were like, wow. But once it's become redundant, we're like, eh. And so what I want to do is I want to unearth that wow again. I think that's what Psalms 8 is going to unearth. And I want to start, usually I end with a guy named Charles Spurgeon, but I want to start there because I think his quote is going to lead the way for us to get there in a, in a really cool way. This is what he says. The Alps that lift their heads above the clouds are dust compared with his divine immensity. The snow-covered summits fail to set him forth. Depths unfathomed are too shallow to express the wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord. It is true the Lord has written his name on creation below. But as the skillful potter much excels the vessels which he fastens on the wheel, so greater far is Jehovah's self-transcendence, his noblest works. Earth's wheels would break. Her axles would snap if fretted with the load of his deity. Spaces too narrow for the eternal's rest and time too short for his throne. Even avalanche and thunder lack a voice to utter the full volume of his praise. How can I declare him? Where are words with which my glowing tongue may speak his name? Silent I bow and humbly I adore. adore. Normally I don't pray before... um, Uh, we go through a psalm, uh, but I want to pray, especially because the last end of that quote um, is, what can I say? Um, At the same time, I also want to pray, if you woke up this morning, you you heard about the shooting that took place in Florida, the largest mass shooting in in America's history, 50 were killed, 50 more were shot um, in a, in a, a gay nightclub in Florida. You can look at the details afterwards, but um, I think it's interesting that we'll go through the psalm that we do this morning, um, talking about the immensity of God and how powerful he is, and yet still living in a very broken environment in in which we live. So let me pray for us as we go through the psalm together. Um, Jesus, thank you, just for your grace. Um, There's a lot of things we don't know, a lot, um, but we recognize that you know everything. You know everything that can be known, that we know, that we could ever have known, the, it's too wonderful for us to even process. Um, so this morning, as we recognize that the Alps are like dust, that you are so large, that the, the earth is your footstool, um, and we, we recognize that we are humbled to be before you, to even open your word that you've given us. Um, God, we recognize that uh, at the same time, how great and powerful you are. There's a culture that questions that power, um, even in times of um, really brokenness that, that took place late last night, and early this morning. Um, God, we understand that you are all powerful and you are in control. And yet at the same time, there's brokenness and evil. And that can be a tension that a lot of us live in, but um, we trust you. Your knowledge is, is far beyond our knowledge, your wisdom far beyond our wisdom. And more importantly, your plan is just better than our plan. We love you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Psalm 8, verse 1, starts like this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory Above the heavens. If you don't know how this is going to work, it's going to be a big Bible study. I'm going to read and then explain. Read and explain. And the first two declarations here are important because the second Lord, he says, "O Lord, our Lord." The second Lord is a generic term in the Hebrew. It's just that our Master, our Lord. It's something that other cultures would use. It's we serve this God. We serve Baal. We serve uh, Moloch. We serve this God. He's our Lord. But the first one is very unique. It's it's the term that's used in Exodus 3:14 when God declares to Moses, "I am who I." M. It's the word Yahweh, a, a a term for God that only the Hebrews would use, only the Israelites, only the people who would trust these scriptures to use to describe that God. And this term is is set here to use and explain. Hey, God is big, he's in charge, we serve him, but he's also extremely personal. Now, the, 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 the crux of everything that's going to, to be about Psalms 8 is actually found in bookends. So if you can look at your Bible, and I want you to look at verse 1, and then I want you to look at verse 9, okay? This is a fancy term called an inclusio. That means it starts and ends the same way, and what's in the middle um, is, is um, explaining the outer parts, right? Does that make sense? So, so what's, what's the meat of the, the sandwich is explaining the bread, if as lame as that sounds, okay? So he says it's both uh, starts and ends with, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And then verse nine: O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And this idea of majesty is brilliance and and excellence and perfection. It's it's uh, some of your Bibles might say magnificence. It's it's this idea of God is who he is. He's wonderful. He's powerful. He is perfect. He is majestic. And that's what we're going to talk about. God's majesty. Now we're going to come back to the second part of that term. You have set your glory above the heavens because we get a little bit into it as he uh, almost quotes the same idea. So here is God's majesty. Here's who he is. Here is how awesome he is. And then we get verse two out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength. Because of your foes to still the enemy of your avenger, of the avenger, sorry, of the avenger. So I don't want to start at the beginning of verse two. So if you're looking at your Bibles out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established your strength. I I want to actually start in the middle. There's four words there um, because of your foes. I want to talk a little bit about this, this idea of majesty, this idea of what Spurgeon laid out of how big God is, how awesome he is. There are people and maybe you're here now. Like there are some people in this room who are Christian who would go, yeah, God is awesome. He is huge. He is perfect. But maybe there's some of you in this room that don't feel that way, right? And and there's an idea that you push against that. How crazy is it that you would give glory to God? Like, what are you talking about? Uh, why, why would you do that? And, 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 and this is a, a tension that, that I think we can live in within our culture, both believers and non-believers. But more appropriately, I want you to understand that these foes are not somebody that, that kind of stand on par with God. He's not saying somebody he j- like a sword fights with. Yes, there's his foes, and this is how he defeats him. No, this idea of foe is somebody who just would speak against, who would say that idea of God's majesty is not true. Now, here's what's awesome. The way that God defeats that type of person, the way that God shuts that type of person up to say, yeah, I have people who say I'm not majestic. i have people who say I don't deserve glory. I have people who say I'm not real. The way that he uh, declares his majesty over them and shows them instead of crushing them like a grasshopper, instead of looking at Richard Dawkins, like millions of people before him and saying, if God is all powerful, then why doesn't he just make Dawkins deaf and dumb? I mean, honestly, if he's so awesome, then all the people who speak against him, why doesn't he just remove them from the earth? I mean, if that's, if that's how powerful God is, because God choose, chooses to do something different, he takes what we, and this is imagery on, on David's part, who writes the psalm, he takes what we define as the weakest parts of our culture, the most helpless thing that we can possibly think of, a newborn baby. Like, and it's not just a newborn baby who defeats the Dawkins of the world. And da- I mean, Dawkins is gonna come and go, right? There have been people who've always pushed against the glory of God. I mean, early Roman and gr- Romans and, and Greek philosophy would c- clearly uh, contend against there being one God as they hold to something called polytheism, many gods. You believe there's one that's, no. So, so he uses God in all of his strength and all of his might uses babies. And what's so funny about this is he doesn't just use the weakest thing within our society. The weakest thing is us as humans can understand. He uses the weakest thing on that weakest thing, the mouth, the speech, no infants coming out of the womb going, wow, like I'm really glad to be here. It was, it was a weird in there. I'm glad to be out now. No, no one does that. Will Ferrell does, but that's it. Okay. Um, no, 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 no one, no one makes But it's crazy that he would use a baby, the weakest thing we can process, and would use the speech of a baby to say, let me show you how awesome I am. So instead of crushing that answer, oh, oh yeah, you want to contend? Let me show you how good I, how, uh, let me just show, no, 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 no. I'll show you how awesome I am by showing the, the, by taking the weakest of the weak and declaring this. And here's what's awesome about this, is this part of the psalm is actually quoted in a moment when Jesus has his dinner, uh, has dinner, the last supper with his disciples, he goes on in John 14, 15, and 16, and 17, talking with him. But then immediately he's captured. And when he's, or before he's captured, uh, before all that takes place, um, before the dinner and all this goes on, what, what uh, takes place is he gets on a donkey, tells his disciples to get a donkey. He gets on this donkey and he rides into Jerusalem and they're, they're crying his praise, like singing his praise. And this is something called Palm Sunday. It's something we've celebrated ever since that moment. Every single year, we celebrate Palm Sunday, and it's during Palm Sunday that Jesus says this quote. Now, why is this? Why why would God do this? Because it is God's MO to take the lowliest of animals. Here is God in all of his majesty becoming human. So if anyone deserves the praise, if anyone deserves the adoration, it's this dude, Jesus. He sits on the lowliest animal to go into the lowliest town to die a lowly, lowly death, and that is how he beats the principalities of darkness. He, he uses the meek, the humble, the weak. This is, he uses Moses with the stutter to be the mouthpiece for the exodus. He uses a shepherd boy in David to become a king. This is God's deal. He takes weakness and says, let me show you how awesome I am. God is bad. He's just legit, man. He just, he, he, no one, no one is trying to buffer up against him. No one has enough strength. As a matter of fact, that's what the psalm goes on to say. I use the weakness, but it's more than that. He goes on to say this, not just to to push against the enemies, but verse three, um, uh, David has this moment, when I look at your heavens. The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Stop real quick. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this moment. I don't even know necessarily if you need to be Christian to have this type of moment. But um, there's a moment, for whatever reason, when you can look at the stars or you can look at mountains or, or maybe a, a baby and just go like, wow. I, um, so I've had the opportunity to, to, to hike the Grand Canyon twice. And done rim to rim, and this last time we did it, I remember coming out of the canyon wanting to kill myself and, and coming out... Um, and I remember looking back, and I was with Vincent, Josh Sorge, and, and Michael Neely, and we, we, I'm just looking at the mountain, and I'm just thinking to myself, like, this thing is huge. Like, this is a big hole. Um, and if you're just looking, and I was just dumbstruck, like, I was thinking if someone was just taking me in a helicopter and drop me off in the middle, I would be done for. Like, I wouldn't know how to get out of this maze and, and, and canyon. I have no idea how to get out of all, all of this. So the idea is kind of put in front of us. David is having this moment where he's going, look at how beautiful God is. And again, quoting verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. If you don't know David, David is coming from a culture where he is um, a shepherd boy. He's, he's taking sheep and he's moving them from one pasture to another. So when he's out in the fields, he's seeing the stars without the city lights, and he's going, wow. So here's what I want to do. I want to get into David's mind before we go on in Psalm 8. I think it's something uh, really important for us to to unearth what's taking place in David's mind because this isn't the only place where somebody goes, wow. I, I want us to just sit for a moment to see how big, how awesome, how great, and how perfect God is. And I want to take you to two large sections of scripture to do that. The first one is in Isaiah. You don't have to go there. It's going to be on the screen. Um, Isaiah chapter 40 verses 12 through 15, 18, 22 through uh, 24. And this is in the new living translation. So if you have an ESV, it's going to be a little bit different, but let me just read to you what this says and, and what's going through David's mind. This is, um, this is talking about God. This is what it says. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Just stop real quick. The Atlantic ocean, Okay, this is God. God's saying Atlantic, Pacific. That's how big he is. So just stop real quick. Just, who, who holds the oceans in the palm of his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Heaven is this big to God. You understand? You understand? He's not like, wow. He's like, no, 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 it's this big. Okay? <laughs> okay, um, who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? So we understand weight determined by gravitational pull. So you don't weigh as much on the earth as you, or you don't weigh as much on the moon as you do on the earth. God actually knows the actual weight of the earth. You understand how crazy that is? Okay. He knows the weight of the earth. Who's able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Does someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. You hear that? Bloop. Okay. A drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than, the, than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. That's the earth. You're tracking with me right now. Okay. As of a grain of sand, verse 18, to whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God? The words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like, grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. They hardly get started, barely taking roots. Then he blows on them and they wither. The wind carries them off like chaff. America, you are so awesome. (laughs) Next, please. How legit is this dude? So powerful, so big, so majestic, so awesome. And the moment we start to lose this all, the moment we start to question, the moment we forget how unbelievably powerful and how you just look at this thing and you go, it's perfect. He's perfect. There's not, he is way beyond me. I can't even, I'm trying to do my best with all the emotion to express what Isaiah is trying to unfold here. He is that Awesome. Now what's crazy about this, there's another story um, in the the, the book of Job. Uh, Let me just kind of unpack the book of Job real quick. So there's a story about this guy named Job who... Um, a weird story. Satan comes to God and basically says, hey, I see your boy, Job. I'm, I'm going to mess with him. God lets him mess with him. We don't have to get into the theological nuances of all that. Long story short, God allows Job to be messed with, with Satan. So he loses his house. He loses his, his barns. He loses his kids. He gets extremely sick. Now, in the midst of all that, the rest of Job, the majority of Job, is three friends of Job come to Job and say, hey, man, Here's why this is happening. The other guys, no, that's not what's happening. This is why. No, that's not what's happening. And so over and over and over, these guys are trying to explain what's going on. until finally, Job goes, this is bull, man. Like, I'm not, I'm done with this. God, where are you at, God? And he's questioning, right? And here's what's beautiful about this. So at the very end of Job, God... God. So not Isaiah, not just David. God responds with how legit he is. So God responds in defending who he is. So Job is so upset with all this going on. So God answers Job. And and I want to read four chapters. And we're not going to read all four chapters, but I want to read what unearths, what goes through the mind of God in, in defending how great he is. Now, lest we feel like we read any of this and there's arrogance, here's what you need to understand. It is best in my family if the kids do not make the rules, do you understand? So, so lest you walk into my home and think I'm prideful because I go, no, no, no. I'm the boss here. Wow. That's arrogant of you. No, it's, it's in the best interests of my children. If I'm the boss and they're not, their joy will be more complete If I'm the boss and they're not the boss. So lest you feel like it is arrogance for God to declare how great he is. Understand this. When God gets all of the glory, when God gets all of the praise, your joy is full. Because when that happens, everything is working out the way it should. And therefore, you will have a completeness. You will feel a fulfilledness that you do not understand otherwise. You tracking with me? Okay, so this is what it says. So this is God responding to Job. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the world, went and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. So so he goes, hey, Job, you you want to question me? All right, buddy, put the gloves on. Let's do this. Now you got questions. Let me ask you a few questions. And Job's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Okay? This is what he says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what was its basis sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or he shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits to it and set bars and doors. And said thus far you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? So the first thing he comes at Job and says, Job, you want to question how big I am and what I'm doing and my plan? I, I, I get it, but, but let me ask you a question real quick. You see the ocean, bro? Did you dig that hole? Did you dig that hole? And have you ever noticed the ocean only comes so far? It's only going to come as far as I let it. Did you decide how far that ocean was going to come? No, God, I didn't. Hey, Job, I'm not done, Okay. Skipping down to verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? The gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know this. Hey, Job, not just the oceans, but do you know how deep they go? Tell me, Job. God, I don't know. Job, I'm not done, okay? Okay. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Hey, Job, have you noticed that I have storehouses of hail and snow? Do you know that? Who who do you think controls the weather, Job? God, I don't know. Job, I'm not done, okay? So you think it's going to be done over and over. He gets all the way through a full chapter, and you as the reader in the book of Job go, oh, that was rough for Job. Chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving, the calving of the does? So now he's not just going to say, look at the expanse of the earth, but let's get into the nitty-gritty, Job. Do you know when like, when a goat gives birth? He goes on to talk about, do you know about ox, wild donkeys, ostriches? He ends up getting into horses, and he goes, you know how powerful a horse is? I, I love this in this moment because God looks at all the animals, and he goes, all the animals I've made, I nailed it on this horse thing, right? Okay? Listen to what he says. Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe its neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley exalts his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed um, as he turns back from the sword. This is like this. Look at how powerful even the creatures I made. You can't even handle the horse if he went wild on you. Yeah, God, I get it. Job, I'm not done. Um, It is by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings towards uh, the south. Is it your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest? Even look at the birds. Can you even understand the way that I created them? Now, now God goes two whole chapters in explaining this. Breathe. It's a lot. So finally, Job actually really does get in a word. It was rhetoric before. He actually does get in a word after two chapters of this. And this is what Job says. Okay? Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And then God says this to Job. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and, make it, and you make it known to me. I'm not done, Job. Okay? Okay? Then he goes on to define this behemoth thing, these huge large animals, these Goliath-type animals, animals in the sea, animals on land who have scales like, like shields. He goes on and on and on, naming all of these things. And then finally, at the end of all of this, four chapters worth of God declaring his greatness, you get this Job response, which is perfect for our psalm this morning. This is eventually at the end of it all, chapter forty-two, how Job responds to God in hearing the greatness of God. Now, hear me. Let's this feel like God is being mean. Just understand what you feel like sometimes when you feel like God isn't there. Like, imagine the the, the amount of at least if I was God, right? Like, thank God I'm not God. Um, the the frustration that goes like, you just keep questioning me. You keep questioning me. I, it, do I not have a plan? Am I not powerful? So he declares how powerful he is. Look at all that I've done. Do you understand the depths of the earth, the oceans, the animals, all the things that I've put before you? Look how great I am. I'm going to take care of you. Don't you understand that? And then Job responds, I think very poetically, at the very end of the the book. He says this, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So the reason I wanted to read both Isaiah and, um, and Job is for us to get a declaration of what's being declared by David in verse 3 when he says, when I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, the only proper response is verse 4. That's the only thing we can do when we really understand the majesty of God. And verse four is this. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Like, look how big God is that he shuts his, his enemies up with the mouths of babes. You see how powerful he is? Like Spurgeon said that the Alps are like dust. You, you see that you see how great he is. Who are we in comparison to that? I mean, I just, I think through Job 37, 16, before all this takes place, it says, who's, who is perfect in knowledge. God is all knowing. You don't even know what the person behind you is doing right now. You honestly don't. They could be looking at the back of your head right now and you could be super insecure about it. Feel that, feel that right now. That could be happening. You don't know. Yet God's knowledge is perfect. He knows everything there is to know. So it's not like you're you an expert in your one field. I know all that there is to know in this field. He is an expert in every single field and more of an expert of what you are in that field. He's all-knowing. Furthermore, uh, the, the Lord is good. Psalm 105. It clearly says at the end of it, the Lord is good. And when I say the Lord is good, I don't mean that the Lord is just like he does good things. No, he is the definition of good. What he does is defined as good. Furthermore, when people do good things, it's because of the goodness of God. Yet yet for us, we have glimpses of goodness. Uh, It goes on to to, to say this, the Lord is faithful when he says in Proverbs uh, chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. The only thing we really find it to be within our humanities, we're consistently inconsistent. Now, I'm not saying this to put us down, but I just want you to understand the, the response to a proper response of majesty of God is not to go, yeah, he's awesome, I, I could be like him, I, I, I'm there. No, 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 it's like, who am I? Who am I? Like, if the earth is a, is, a, is a speck of sand on his finger, like, what am I on that speck of sand? Who am I? Now, um, once a week, uh, the Myers family will do a, a family movie night. And a couple of weeks ago, we watched uh, the movie Goosebumps. Um, and so, uh, so we watched, watched Goosebumps, and it's this Nickelodeon, if you don't know anything about it. Long story short, um, Jack Black's in it, and it's kind of this comedy... Uh, scary thing or whatever. Um, well in, in this movie, this Jack Black plays a character where he wrote the, the stories goosebumps. If you've ever heard those before and they all come alive. Well at the very end of the movie, the last line of the movie, um, Jack Black is sitting in a classroom and he's going to tell the, the, this new English class, how to write a story. And he says something really, really cool that I think it can apply here. He says, here's how a perfect story is written. You have the beginning, you have the middle, and then you have a twist. Okay. And what we're going to find in Psalm 8 is there's a clear response, a proper response to who we are in comparison to God. But there is a word in verse 5, isn't there, that really dumbfounds us. Though that's all true, though God is awesome and beautiful and perfect, and we in comparison pretty much feel like, look like nothing how great he is, yet, yet... Talking about man, when I say man, I mean male and female. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with the glory, crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. I, I've explained this before, um, but in comparison, how how great God is, there is something really bizarre about man in his relationship with God. I mean, it's crazy. We are the only one in all of creation that, are, that, that we are made in his image. And that we don't mean just looking like God. We are made to be creators. We are made to, to, to be lovers. We, we, we are made to feel emotion like God. We are made in his image. And, and it's more than that because I've explained this, but, but the reality is um, human beings have a distinct role in eternity and past because human beings are the only things that continue to be reproduced and live forever. Okay? Do you understand? where animals, as much as you want your dog to go to heaven, animals continue to reproduce, don't have souls. I'm sorry, okay? There will be animals in heaven, just not yours, okay? S- especially, especially not mine, okay? Um, okay, so animals animals, re- animals uh, continue to reproduce but don't live forever. But angels live forever and don't reproduce. Humans Every time a baby is born, this soul comes into existence. I mean, this really like mysterious thing that lives forever. I mean, humans have such a unique role in all of creation. And here is God using David to declare this, how beautiful, how awesome how majestic God is recognizing our place, but then going, yeah, but though we, we, we may look like nothing in comparison to God, he's done something unique with us. We're like made a little lower than angels. Um, so a a guy named uh, Warren Wisby says this, instead of of humans being a little lower than uh, animals, as most science believes, they are actually a little lower than God. So a little higher than animals, as science believes, they are actually a little lower than God. So, um, I think I want to go back to verse 1, actually, before we move on. So if you go to verse 1, I want you to notice something, because this is where we're going to turn and start to wrap up. You have set your glory above the heavens. So if you remember how the whole thing started, right? O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then he makes this declaration in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So... All of creation is, as is, is, is you, you and when it says heavens, it doesn't mean just like a spiritual heaven. It's the word used in Genesis 1, this idea of the stars, the sky, it's out there, it's, it's up in space, wherever it is. All of creation is not culminated in anything else but man. So man is at the center. God has taken, though he's lowly, some ways that his image has put man at the center of all of creation. And creation crowns man, which goes on further to say this. You have given him dominion over the, ber- or over the works uh, of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So this is quoting something. Now, this is where I need you to put your thinking hat on because this is where this whole thing kind of turns. I need you to go to Genesis chapter one real quick, okay? Um, I don't have it on the screen, so if you have a Bible, you're going to have to go there. Um, but in Genesis chapter 1, a passage we go to a lot, it's called the creation mandate. Um, it's, it's a section of scripture after 25 verses. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with Genesis 1, God starts this whole thing by speaking into creation. So he's making cows, and he's making birds, and he's making trees, and he's making land, right? So he's creating, and he's creating, and he's creating for 25 verses. And, and in those 25 verses, you get five days of creation, Well, well, as the page turns, you get into the sixth day of creation, and he makes man. Now, all the uniqueness that is found in verse 5, that he's made a little lower than angels, is at first declared. But then, verse 6 is declared, and I would say of Psalm chapter 8, that's what's being declared um, from uh, uh, Genesis 1. This is what it says, verse 26. You can read along if you want. If not, uh, just listen. Uh, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? So here is God. He makes man in his own image. And then, check this out. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. You hear, the, hear how that's in Psalm 8? You can hear that. Over the fish of the sea, the birds in the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here, track, track with me here. Here we go. Last, track with me. We're almost done. This is what God does. He makes everything. And according to Isaiah 6, everything he makes in all of creation before man is made to bring him glory. It's made to bring him glory. The way the trees move in the wind, the the way the stars are in the sky, they're made to bring him glory. He takes, verses 1 through 25, all that he makes, and he gives it to man. And now man is responsible for taking creation and giving him glory. Do you understand? He takes the thing, that God, that God takes the thing that gives him glory and gives it to man to give him glory. Now, unless you feel like that's a really moot point and makes no sense, hear me when I say this. This is a big deal every time you take a bite into a piece of pizza. I mean, every single time you go out to your yard and you rake the leaves. When you feel like your job is so pointless. You don't want to go anymore. It's so mundane. You don't know why you're doing it. You feel like you're in this time-lapse, little time-lapse Groundhog Day type situation. You're going on and on and on. And here's the reality. God has given you food, not just to digest, not just to take and consume, but he has given you food to have dominion. He has given you land to have dominion. He has given you a car. He's given you a house. He's given you children. He's given you neighbors. He has given you space to have dominion. And all that you are to do is take that, made in his image, and give it back to him. So let me give you a quote real quick. A guy named uh, Gerhard von Rad. You don't have to know who he is. He's a a German theologian. I think this is very important that we get this kind of toggling back between Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. And I hope this clicks for us, okay? Because this is what he goes on to say just as a powerful earthly kings to uh, indicate their claim to dominion, erect an image of themselves in the providences of their empire where they do not personally appear. Stop real quick. What he's going to say is, um, back then kings could not go everywhere, right? So the idea being that President Obama is not going to be able to visit everywhere. So everywhere he goes, he would put a statue, some type of emblem. So he's going to come to Arizona. There's a, a statue of Obama, statue of Obama, statue of Obama. So where anyone comes to the land, they would know, oh, Obama's the one who's in charge here. Do you understand? So that's what a king would do. Wherever he would would go, there would be a statue or an emblem of some kind that declares, hey, this guy's the king of the land. So that's what he's talking about. So he says, just like a king would do that, so man is placed upon the earth in, uh, uh, in God's image as God's sovereign emblem. He is really only God's representative summoned to maintain and enforce God's claim to, do, to, uh, to dominion over the earth. The decisive thing about man's similarity to God, therefore, is his function in the non-human world. So let me just, here we go. I hope this is where we can kind of tie all this together. Our job as humans, as we read, and I quote, you've set him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with the glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of the hands, put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. As we read in Isaiah, he has the oceans, right? As we read in Job, he holds the goats and the oxen and the horses, all that he has created. He has taken all of that. And though we feel like we're nothing, God has taken all of that and said, here, here take care of this. How big of a deal is that? Because all of those things are meant, they are wired to give him glory. He says, take these things and give me glory. That's a big deal. That we would understand everything we do within this creation, every relationship we create every time we we drive into our our home and look at the the house that's been erected for us to live in. I mean, look at the the beauty, like we're we're in a building, somebody thought of putting structure and somebody ran electricity in this. This this was God's idea. He created all these things that we take for granted. Here he is and he's given them to us to have dominion over, to have dominion over, to give him glory. So here's where I want to close and I really will close this time, I promise. Um, This is going to be feel like a stretch, but it's not. I think there's only one way we can do this. And I think this has always been his plan. Um, according to, uh, this is going to be a stretch, but track with me. According to Revelation 18, it was always God's plan to send Jesus to the cross. Now, this is weird, right? Because if you know your Bible, you know that sin doesn't take place until Genesis 3. And if sin doesn't take place into Genesis 3, then, then God had, before the foundations of the, the earth, planned for Jesus to go to the cross. That means he planned for Jesus to go to the cross before sin took place. That means God has always had a plan. And his plan had always been this one of identifying, setting up, and growing something we know as the kingdom. But someone enters into this kingdom, breaks it up, and we feel like his kingdom is lost. But now his plan comes to fruition, culmination. Everything sprouts in this man named Jesus. And now suddenly, we see like we didn't see before. We see like the Old Testament characters didn't understand before. We recognize that to bring glory to God, to take all of creation, is to give it, to to lead it into, to sing about Jesus. Like he's the one, he is the key, he's, he's the pinnacle of all this. So no matter what we're talking about in Isaiah, what we're talking about in Job, for us to be given all of creation is to take and say, Jesus, this belongs to you, it is your kingdom. And what's awesome about this is in Romans chapter 16, verse 27, it says this, to the only wise God be glory forevermore. To God be glory forevermore. But hear this, through Jesus Christ. So this is true through Jesus Christ. So God has given us dominion for us to live all of our life, all for Jesus, every day, all the time. This is how we honestly respond to the greatness and the vastness of God. It's the only response. And then, of course, he finishes with this, O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God has had a plan. He has a plan. He knows what he's doing. He is powerful, and it all is about Jesus. As you read the text, so um, I had said last week that we're going to take the psalm that we do each time and um, and read it as a corporate reading. So if you guys can stand to your feet, um, you can sit down after we read this together. Um, this would be something that that pretty positive the Israelites would do together. They would take this, this psalm um, and then they would corporately read together. And this is called a, um, a call and response. So I'm going to read um, Psalm chapter eight. And if you can just put the response up for me, John, you don't have to um, put the whole psalm. I'm going to read Psalm chapter eight. And um, if you can... Just respond with, you are God, and you are good. I'm going to read a couple verses. You respond with, you are God, you are good. I'll read a couple more verses. You are God, you are good. Then I'll read the very end. You are God, and you are good. So this is us responding together to this psalm, to the majesty of God, the beauty of God, recognizing that he alone is God, and he alone is good. It says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which, have, uh, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray.